It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. We're going to be looking at a name this morning that I've actually been really excited about this whole season uh, to dive into, <clears throat> but it also intimidated me in a lot of ways. Uh, but it's the name El Elyon, uh, which is often translated the idea of like God Most High or the Most High God or Lord Most High. And uh, we're going to kind of skim several different passages. <clears throat> uh, we're going to be in Genesis, we're going to be in Isaiah, in the Psalms, so you'll just have to follow along the best you can. Um, when you look at the name Elyon, it's interesting. It means something or someone who is higher. It means to go up, to ascend. It means upper. Uh, for example, in Ezekiel, it's used a lot of times in terms of like the upper gate or the upper pool. Uh, but it also means the supreme or the highest or, as it is often translated, the most high, speaking of God himself. Uh, it's used in a variety of ways. I think it's 53 times in the Old Testament and tw- about half of those or so are specifically speaking of God. So again, there's the idea of the upper pools, the upper gates idea. But about half the times it's used, it's speaking of our God and that our God is the most high, that he is the highest, that he is the supreme, uh, that he is the preeminent one. So here's a couple quotes from some scholars or some writers. Elmer Town says this, it is the superlative degree as in high, higher, and highest. Or, and Spengler says this, when applied to God, the term Elion means highest or exalted one. It emphasizes that God is the highest in every realm of life. Or as another writer says, El Elion occupies the position of highest rank in this universe. He is the highest of the high. He is the God of gods. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords. A formula designed to describe the ultimate and superlative degree. In other words, he's not just above, he's like to the greatest extent above. Uh, and I don't know if you, if you ever hang around me, I love a superlative. And you know, those great words that just add oomph to a sentence. Like, how was your day? My day's not just good, it's like phantasmagorical good. <laughs> it's like phenomenally good. It's like tubular good, right? It's like fantastically amazing good, right? It's those words that kind of beef it up. And do you realize that when it comes to our God, that he is superlatively higher than the highest, that he is the exalted one. He is lifted high. He is supreme. He is exalted. He is the most high. He's El Elyon. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Now, about half the times that it's referencing God, it's just in the book of Psalms. Uh, It becomes one of those things that the psalmists begin to just declare the praise and the wonder of this God of ours that is high and lifted up. Uh, For example, Psalm 47.2, for Yahweh most high is fearsome, a great king over all the earth. Or Psalm 57 verse 2, I will call to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. Or Psalm 83 verse 18, that they may know that you alone, your name is Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. Or Psalm 87 verse 5, and the most high himself will establish Zion. He is lifted up. He is this great most high God of ours. 
It's interesting, that idea uh, is often associated with this concept of being exalted. And it's a different word in Hebrew, but it conveys the same idea. Uh, For example, this idea that he is exalted, look at Psalm 97 verse 9. For you are Yahweh most high, right? You are Yahweh, El Elyon, over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. There, there is no one like our God. There is no equal to him. He is far higher than all things. Or look at Psalm 148, verse 13. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for his name alone is set on high, or it is exalted. His splendor is above earth and heaven. Or Isaiah 33, verse 5. Yahweh is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Or Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one, high and lifted up, who dwells forever, whose name is holy. I love what Psalm 113, verse 4 through 6 says. Listen to all this language about high and lifted up. It says, Yahweh is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like Yahweh our God, the one who sits on high? And yet the one who sits on high, listen to this, is the one who brings himself low to see the things in heaven and on earth. So so he is the high and lifted up one. He is the exalted one. He is the most high. And yet the one who is most high humbles himself to come low. Isn't that beautiful? Now, as you follow that theme through, what you begin to recognize is that Jesus himself is that most high. Jesus is El Elyon. In fact, I find it really intriguing as you work through the Gospels, the demons see Jesus and they often refer Jesus by this name. Uh, For example, uh, in Mark uh, chapter 5, Jesus comes to the shoreline of the Gadarenes on the Sea of Galilee and this man who is this pagan Gentile is running out to Jesus and he's full of demons. And of course, when Jesus asks him his name, he says, my name is Legion, right? So the five to 6,000 demon thing. And so in the middle of all this, listen to what this demon-possessed man says to Jesus in Mark 5, verse 7. It says, crying out with a loud voice, Legion said, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. So could you imagine here are the demons, do they, they recognize Jesus in this case, as the son of the Most High. Uh, as, you, as you move forward, like in the book of Acts, uh, here, here's Paul uh, and Luke and the group of disciples, and they're traveling around, and there's this demon-possessed girl who fortune tells. And she's following Paul. Could you imagine this? And this is what it says. That following after Paul and us, Luke writes, that this demon-possessed girl kept crying out, saying, these men are slaves of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, which I just find humorous to me, that here is a demon-possessed girl who's actually telling the whole people they know the way of salvation. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, I just think that's ironic, that it's the demons who are saying they have the way, but they are the slaves of the Most High God, that they are slaves of El Elyon. Uh, Paul writes this in Romans 9, verse 5, From whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Think about this. Talking about Jesus, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He is El Elyon. He is the one over all. He is the high and lifted up one. He is the exalted one. 
or listen in the book of Revelation, speaking of Jesus, it says, and he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written. Well, what does this name on his thigh say? King of kings, Lord of lords. What does that mean? He is the superlative one above all things. That Jesus is in a position of being the most high. I came across this writer, which I thought was really interesting, and he says this, when we say that God is most high, and he gives a little list of things. I just want to give this list. I just thought this was really fascinating. But when we say that God is most high, it means that he is higher than his own creation. And there's a bunch of verses, and you'll have to watch, I guess, for those listening to the podcast, they'll have to get on the video to get all the verses, because I'm not going to read them. But when we say that God is most high, it means that he is higher than his own creation. It means that he is higher than the idols of men. He is higher than his people. He is higher than earthly kings and potentates. He is higher than the heavens. It means his ways and thoughts are higher than man's ways and thoughts, just as the heavens are higher than the earth. And it means that he is exalted as head above all. Do you realize that when we say that God or our precious Jesus is the most high, it means nothing compares with him. Nothing is his equal. He is the high and lifted up one. So if you take all of that then, I want to come into the first time it's recorded in Scripture. Uh, In Genesis chapter 14, there's this rather intriguing scene. Uh, Abram and Lot had separated, and Lot is now living in this place called Sodom. And we understand it was not the best of towns. But this group comes in, and they capture the people of Sodom, and they take them up. And so Abram, in order to rescue Lot, travels 240 miles and with his people and goes up to fight. And he literally captures Lot and all the people of Sodom and takes back all the stuff, and they're coming back. And as Abram is coming back with the people of Sodom and all their goods, the king of Sodom comes out. And it's interesting, as you read through the story, it's like the king of Sodom wants part of the praise and wants part of the, uh, the, the victory, if you will. And so he's making this petition to Abram. And then there's, in the middle of the scene, a very strange character by the name of Melchizedek showing up. And so this is one of two scenes in Scripture where the name El Elyon shows up in a clustered sense. And it's used several times in just a couple of verses. So listen to this. In Genesis 14, talking about the position and the possession. So listen to this. Uh, Genesis 14, starting in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of El Elyon, the God most high. Then he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be El Elyon, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram, think about this, gave a tenth to Melchizedek of everything he had, of of all those spoils. And the king of Sodom, so this is the other king, said to Abram, give the people to me, but take the possessions for yourself. In other words, just for note, if if Abram kept the possessions, he's basically giving credence to the king of Sodom. He's allowing him to participate in the victory. Just hold on to that. I'll come back to that. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand, listen to this, to Yahweh El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours so that you would not say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. 
So think about this. Here's the king of Sodom who just got all of his people back. And he says, I'll take the people, you take the stuff. And Abram's like, no, you get everything back. Because I don't want anyone to say that, oh, it was the king of Sodom who brought about the victory. Oh, it's the king of Sodom who helped Abram become rich. Do you know what Abram's actually saying? Abram's actually declaring, do you know who rescued us? Do you know who delivered the people? Do you know who's actually giving the bounty and all this? It's my God, Yahweh, who is the God most high. So listen to what Tony Evans says about this. I just thought this was a great way to simplify it. He writes this, So adamant was Abram against the king of Sodom stealing any of God's glory that Abram told the king of Sodom that he wouldn't even take a thread or a sandal thong just so that the king couldn't claim that he had contributed to Abram's success. El Elyon had won the battle and El Elyon would receive the praise due him. And Abram instinctively gave a tenth as a visible physical recognition, uh, recognition that El Elyon owned it all. So the fact that Abram gave a tenth to Melchizedek, the priest of Elion, is a declaration to say, it's actually that God, my Yahweh, who brought the victory. And it is this God who actually owns everything. And so I'm giving a piece of all of that back to him as a physical symbol that he owns everything. Does that make any sense? In other words, God gets all the credit. So two ideas when you look at this. When you look at this idea that Abram looked at the king of Sodom and declared that Yahweh is El Elyon, do you realize that he's equating Yahweh and El Elyon as the same God? That it's not like there's some separate God called the Most High. Abram is saying, no, Yahweh is that God. Yahweh is the Most High. And then secondly, and the fact that God is the Most High, in other words, he's in first position or the highest, He also goes on to say that he is the possessor of heaven and earth. In other words, he owns and is above it all. So when we say that God is most high, do you recognize that we are speaking of this Yahweh, our God, and that he possesses everything, and that he's in the position of first place? Does that make sense? Now, that's the first time it's recorded in Scripture. But I'd actually like to take you to the first time this word, this name, is actually used, which is actually happens before creation. This is really fascinating to me. Uh, and it's this idea of the battle of position. Uh, as you're walking through Scripture, you notice that there's this rather odd passage in Isaiah chapter 14, and it's speaking of Lucifer. And when you look at Isaiah 14, l- listen to what this says. It says, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart. Now, listen to this. This this was the heart of Lucifer. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like El Elyon. So think about this. Though Abram uses it in this first time it's recorded in Scripture, the first time the word is actually used that we know of is actually by Lucifer saying, you know what I'm going to do? 
I'm going to be like that. And I don't know if you heard the emphasis, but how much self-focus there is in that statement. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to ascend, and I'm going to pull this off, and I'm going to... And this whole heart of pride was his downfall. Now, here was this... This, this, was a, this is such an interesting thought, and I still don't fully know what to do with this. Do you realize that that attitude of the self-focus, the self, hey, puffing yourself up, hey, I will ascend and I will become like El Elyon. I will be the most high. Do you realize that that is the exact same language and attitude that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had looking at his kingdom? And the other cluster where El Elyon shows up is not just Genesis, it's in the book of Daniel. And he's a variety of times in the book of Daniel, uh, a variety of times in the book of Daniel. So it's really just ponder this. And again, this is what I don't I don't know fully what to do. Is if you fast, I'll read the Daniel stuff, but when you fast forward into the book of Revelation, do you realize that there is a battle happening in the book of Revelation of who is actually the Lord most high? And you have Jesus, the high and lifted up one, and then you have this antichrist figure who lives in Babylon, whose whole focus is, I will ascend, I will rise myself up, I will become like El Elyon. And isn't it interesting in the book of Revelation that you have to align with one of those, one of those two characters? You'll either be marked by God or you'll be marked by the spirit of the antichrist. And the spirit of the Antichrist is always a self-focus. Hey, I will become like God. I will put myself on high. I will... Isn't that an interesting thought? So as you come into Daniel then, listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says as he's looking out across his kingdom. Now, Babylon was an amazing kingdom. I mean, it had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Just the gardens of Babylon was considered one of the things to see. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar, and he's looking out at his kingdom. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar says... Uh, in Daniel 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 29 through 30. At the end of the 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal house by the strength of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Do you hear that that's actually the same thing that Lucifer said? which caused his fall. And just as Lucifer says, oh, I'm going to be like the Most High. I'm going to lift myself up. I'm going to ascend. Nebuchadnezzar is looking at his kingdom in Babylon saying, oh, this is me. This is all me. This is for my glory, honor, and praise. Woo, isn't this great? Look at what I did. Now, Daniel comes on the scene and he gives this prophecy about what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to this. Daniel said, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the resolution of the Most High. So think about this. Hey, this is what El Elyon is saying to you, O Nebuchadnezzar, the one who thinks you're on high. The Most High, El Elyon, which has reached my Lord and King, that you will be driven away from mankind and your place of habitation will be with the beasts of the field and you'll be given grass to eat like cattle and will be drenched like the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that El Elyon is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whomever he wishes. Daniel says, uh, oh dear king of Babylon, I don't know who you think you are, 
But let me tell you what the Most High says. He is going to strip you down. And if you know the story, Nebuchadnezzar is stripped down. And for seven years, he's eating grass like cattle. His hair grows out like crazy, and his fingernails are like the claws of, a, of an eagle. That, that is not a good sign. When you are literally stripped down and become like the, a mortal beast. And finally, after seven years of this, which even just that number is interesting to me in this, that at the, at the end of this completion, look at what Nebuchadnezzar is forced to come to the conclusion of. He realizes that he himself is not that high. And look at what he says. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes toward heaven, and my knowledge returned to me, and I blessed El Elyon and praised and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Do you recognize that that same tension is actually the same tension in each of our own souls? Because we have a strange propensity to want to do the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar did. That we actually are compelled to have the same attitude that Lucifer had. I will be on high. I will exalt myself. Hey, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm going to live in success. And, and I'm, hey, everyone's going to look at me and go, whoa, and I will be most high. And that prideful propensity in our souls actually becomes a major battle. So think about this. There is a battle of who will be most high in our lives. It's either ourselves and our pride, or it'll, it's actually going to be the God most high. It's going to be El Elyon himself. Let me just give you two statements by two authors that I just thought were fairly illuminating. One of them says this, we live in the age of the God shrinkers in which we have unwarrantably great thoughts of humanity and scandalously small thoughts of God. I thought that was a great way of saying it. That we think very highly of ourselves and we think incredibly small of our God. Or, or listen to this by another author. He says, modern man looks at God through the wrong end of the telescope, making him appear much smaller than he really is. Then turns the contraption around to look at himself, concluding that he is greater and more important than he actually is. Now, that's a great way of describing our modern culture. Sadly, even in the church. Do you recognize that we don't actually have a very high view of God? We, we've actually dumbed him down. We, we've made him safe. We've made him comfortable. We've made him placating where he just kind of taps everyone on the head saying, okay, just live however you want and do whatever you want to do and think however you want to think and, and just live for your pleasure and your prestige and your popularity and your whatever. And, and I'll just, I'll bless you and just, just say, you know, Jesus is Lord and you'll, you'll get into heaven and everything's going to be happy-go-lucky. Do you recognize that that's actually not our God? Our God is holy. He's righteous. He's truth. He is full of mercy and grace and kindness and love. But folks, he is the high and lifted up one. And we cannot bring him down to our level. We cannot dumb him down. We cannot, we cannot dumb down his decrees. We, we cannot justify our sin and our selfishness and our pleasure because we somehow want to do our own thing and yet we want to add God on top of that. 
There is a battle for who's actually going to be the most high in your life. Is it going to be you and your pride and your selfishness and your whims and your... Or is it actually going to be him? So that being said, I, I want to just give three practical outflows of what it means to see Jesus as El Elyon, as the Most High. And in other words, if, if God is actually going to be the Most High in our lives, if we're actually going to be remove ourselves from this position of pride, and we're actually going to bring Him high and lift it up in our lives, what is that actually going to mean practically? I'm just going to give you three quick ideas. Number one, it's the idea of perspective. Will I see Jesus as He actually is? In other words, will I actually see him as the Most High? Will I see him as the one who is over all? Will I see him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Will I see him as the high exalted one? And as a side of that, will I renounce my pride and will I renounce seeing myself as the high one? And in other words, would I actually see him as he truly is? Would I allow God to change my perspective where it comes off of myself and, and, and the, the goodness and the greatness of my life, and could I put it upon him and the goodness and the greatness of him? Would I quit exalting myself? Would I quit living in my pride and selfishness and sin? And could I start living with my gaze fixed upon Jesus? First Peter 5.5 5 says this, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That word opposed is actually a really scary term to me. Uh, it really means to keep at arm's length. And it also means to set your army against. Do you recognize that when you walk in pride and when you set yourself up as the high one, that it actually keeps you at arm's length from God? that it actually sets his army against you. Now, just to have God at arm's length would be scary to me. But then for him to put his entire army against you, that is not a good place to be. Do you realize that we are not, we should not ever walk in pride. And yet pride is so insidious. It is so deceptive. It is so sneaky. So what are we called to do? We need his grace. We need to walk in humility. We need to choose humility and then ask the one who is meek and lowly to produce greater humility in our lives. And any time that the Spirit of the Lord confronts your life and says, <clears throat> um, that's pride. Uh, see that right there? That's, that's self-focused. See right there? You're, you're trying to make yourself better than you really are. You're, you're trying to make yourself look more appealing to the people around you. That, that's all pride, folks. And what would happen if we actually came humbly before the Lord and just says, okay, Lord, I, I don't want an ounce of pride because you oppose pride, but you give grace to those who are humble. Lord, I need a perspective change. I am not the most high. I'm not even high. Look at Psalm 97.9. For you, Yahweh, El Elyon, are over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Would you realize that it is him who is the high and lifted up one? He is exalted. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, 10 through 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Do you realize that he is the high and lifted up one? That everyone will bow. Everyone will stoop low and come in humility. But your choice is you can either do that now or you will be forced to do it later. Do you recognize that he is the high and lofty one? And we need a perspective change. As Colossians 1.18 reminds us, he is preeminent. He is in first place. He is the one that we should be bowing to. That he is the most high. And we need a perspective change to realize that. So, number one, it's not just perspective, but number two is this idea of protection. I, I love, as you start following this idea of El Elyon throughout Scripture, that it is in El Elyon that we find our refuge, our security, our dwelling place, our protection. For example, Psalm 91. I love Psalm 91. Listen to how it begins. He who abides in the shelter of El Elyon will abide in the shadow of El Shaddai. And if you listen back to the old a previous episode of El Shaddai, this is even more beautiful. So let me read this again. He who abides in the shelter of El Elyon will abide in the shadow of El Shaddai. I will say to Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Do you realize that the all-sufficient one is the one who is most high and that Yahweh, our precious Jesus, becomes our dwelling place, becomes our refuge, becomes our security, becomes our protection. A few verses later in verse 9, Psalm 91 says this, For you have made Yahweh my refuge, El Elyon, your dwelling place. What if we make him our dwelling place? What, what would it change in your life if you began to realize that the high and lifted up one actually wants you to dwell in him? That our position as Christians is in Christ. And what would it look like if your dwelling place, you began to realize that that position in Christ, that you're actually seated in the high and lofty one, that the one who is lifted up where everything is beneath his feet, that all things are under his command. Don't you think that that would change how we dealt with temptation? If I began to realize that my dwelling place, my security is in Christ, he is the high and lifted up one, well then what's going to What's going to push me around? Do, do you think temptation actually has authority and position in your life if you are seated and dwelling in the one who is high above all things? Do, do, you think, do you think the enemy can harass you? He can try. But do you think he actually has ability to, to sabotage your life? Do, do you, do you, don't you think that you can withstand any temptation and any difficulty, that you can go through any trial if you're in the Most High? Now, he's not going to remove circumstance from you. Please understand me. But in the midst of your circumstance, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your sufferings, in the midst of your finances, in the midst of your health, in the midst of your family, in the midst of your whatever is going on, wouldn't it be amazing to realize that you can actually be seated and dwell in the very place of the high one? His name is Jesus. And my position as a believer is in him. So listen to this again. He who abides in the shelter of El Elyon. The word abide means to rest, means to sink down into, it means to embrace, it means to refuse to depart. So what if we did that? What if we would rest? What if we would sink down into? What if we would cling? What if we would refuse to depart from the shelter of the Most High? 
And what if we would rest, cling, sink down into, refuse to depart, abide in the shadow of El Shaddai? What if we would actually say to our precious Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my God, I will trust you. See, what if that was our attitude? I look at Psalm 56, verse 2 and 3. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Elion. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Or look at Psalm 57, verse 2. I will call to God Most High. I will call to El Elyon, to God who accomplishes all things for me. Do you realize that he is your protection? He is your hiding place. He is that dwelling that you are to remain in. That's beautiful to me. And thirdly, there's this idea of praise. I love how often in the Psalms, it is used of this name that we are to magnify the Lord, that we are to praise his glorious name, El Elyon. That when you begin to see that he is the high and lifted up one, it should cause something to rise within you. That when you see him high and lifted up, something should bubble forth within your life that just goes, wow, I've got to sing praises to you. Wow, I've got to declare the wonders of your name. Wow, I just, I just got to lift you high. Why? Because he's high. And if we actually saw him as he is, do you realize you couldn't help but worship? You couldn't help but give the entirety of your life to him. You just couldn't help but just go, whoa, all the time if you truly saw him as he is. Here's a couple of verses. Psalm 92, verse 1 through 2. It is good to give thanks to Yahweh and to sing praises to your name, El Elyon, to declare your hesed, your loving kindness, in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Or Psalm 7, verse 17. I will give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of Yahweh El Elyon. Or Psalm 9, verse 2. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, El Elyon. Could I encourage you to seek refuge in him? Could, could I encourage you to turn your perspective upon the high and lift it up one? Because I promise you, if you would see him as he is, it's the illustration we've used around here so oftentimes is like a beautiful sunset, which we have some great ones here in Colorado. But if you truly see a magnificent sunset, do you realize you, you don't have to arm twist yourself to go, whoa. In fact, it slips out. You see, you're just like, whoa. And you grab your phone and you start taking pictures. In fact, you start calling people up, get outside, look outside. You, you just can't help yourself. Why? Because you stared at it. Do you know how hard it is to worship our Lord when you haven't seen him? And so we've used the illustration that you know, behind all this wood and, and stuff, there's this big window, which we cover, <laughs> which is sad. But, you know, imagine, imagine, um, I'll change the illustration. Imagine this direction is the sunset. And I'm staring at the sunset. And I'm like, whoa, guys, the sunset's amazing. We should sing about the sunset. So let's stand and sing to the sunset. Oh, beautiful sunset, wonderful sunset. But do you realize if you're not looking at the sunset, you're just, you're just saying words. You're just like, all right, I'll go through it. Yay, sunset. But what if you behold the sunset? 
And in the midst of beholding the sunset, you realize you couldn't help yourself but go, whoa. Which is one of the reasons we love doing worship after a sermon. Because a lot of times, you know, if, if, if you're from a normal, <laughs> normal church, and, and you know, you sing the three songs, and then you have a sermon, and then you sing a song. If you, those three songs, and I, and I know why we do this, is, is to prepare your heart to hear the, the message of the word. But I found that it is so hard to worship unless you've been meditating on the truth all morning long. Because most of us, we're, we're, we're all distracted. We come into church, and we're like, all right, uh, sing, sing about Jesus. All right, I will. And I'm, I'm trying to sing, but I'm not looking at him. But what I love, I love about worship after a sermon is that you're taking the word and you're lifting up the word and you're saying, behold the one, behold Jesus, behold the high and lifted up one. Let's look at El Elyon. And you realize it doesn't take much arm twisting to worship. Why? Because you've been staring at him. And would it be neat if you could actually see him high and lifted up? And that you would actually see yourself in a real perspective that you are not the high one. He is. That he is your refuge and he is your fortress. The God in whom you trust. And as such, shouldn't there just be something that just bubbles forth out of you? So how I, how I want to end is, I, I would actually, I just want to read through an entire psalm. And it's Psalm 47. And Psalm 47, now this is not scripture, this is my header in my Bible. But the header in my Bible calls Psalm 47, God is king of all the earth. Meaning what? He is El Elyon. He's the one above all things. He's the high and lifted up one. So just as a way to end, I want to end with praise. I want to end beholding him and declaring the wonder of his name. So look at Psalm 47. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Make a loud shout to God with the shout of a shout, with the sound of a shout of joy. For Yahweh, El Elyon, is fearsome, a great king over all the earth. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has ascended with a loud shout, Yahweh with the shout of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The nobles of the people have assembled themselves with the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. He is the high and lifted up one. Amen? All right, let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that we are not high. Lord, we thank you that you actually are the high, exalted, magnificent, majestic one. And that you rule and reign over all things. That you are the, you're in the position, uh, you are the preeminent one, as Colossians 1.18 says. But that you have the position of first place and you possess everything. That as Abram says, you are the possessor of heaven and earth. And because you possess it, you control, you are over, you rule, you reign. Lord, you are the superlative in every sense of the word, high over all. Lord, I pray that you would give us a fresh perspective of that reality. 
Lord, could you turn our gaze from ourselves and our prideful tendency? Lord, would you bathe us in humility? And would you cause our gaze to turn upon Jesus Christ? And that we would see you as the high and lifted up one. Lord, could we find our refuge in you? Would you allow us to realize that you are our safety, our security, our protection, and that we are to abide, to dwell in El Elyon? And Jesus, I do pray that we, would, we wouldn't be able to help ourselves, but our lips would be full of praise. That as we see you as you are high and lifted high, lifted up, that we, that we would just be awestruck by the reality of who you are and what you are doing. And that we wouldn't have to arm twist ourselves to say good things about you. We just couldn't help ourselves, but we would just consistently, continually dwell and declare the reality of who you are. So Lord, that's what we want to do. We want to worship. We don't want to sing songs. We want to worship. So Lord, could somehow you, in the midst of having this perspective upon you, could you bubble forth within our lives and may what come out be worship unto the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, we are so blessed and grateful that you are El Elyon, the one who is most high. We love you. We give you all the praise and glory. In your precious name, amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.